You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. To Judges chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 6 this morning. Um, but, uh, but before we get into the text, I was thinking as uh, I was just, you know, the elephant in the room is that it feels a little awkward not to have music on a Sunday morning, right? Um, it's like it, it, this feels kind of jolting to move from announcements to prayer and then straight into the sermon. So uh, th- this is really encouragement for my own heart, and maybe it would be helpful for you as well as, as we finish the remainder of January without any music. But Sunday morning, uh, the day that, that God's people gather together is, is a day that we are to be worshiping the Lord as a family. And so I just want to encourage you uh, not to think about music as that preparation time where we could receive God's word. That, that, that music would be that point uh, of the Sunday morning gathering that we would say, okay, now, we, now we're ready to hear God's word, but that we would actually take time to prepare our hearts before the Lord before we come to the Sunday gathering, that this might be a good thing for our family. So let, let me just encourage you in that throughout the rest of the month. How, how can we, as the family of God, prepare for the gathering before we get to the gathering? And so I, I just encourage you to think through that over the next couple of weeks. Um, we're in week two of our sermon series in the book of Judges. Uh, again, we're going to be in chapter two, and we're going to begin in verse six this morning. I am really glad that we're in the book of Judges. It is an incredibly fitting book. Fitting um, because we live in a time where the right thing to do, the right thing to do is celebrated. Here's what I mean. We live in a time where it's the right thing to do to express that gender is fluid. We, we live in a time where the right thing to do is to proclaim racial injustices over any and all other injustices. Where the right thing to do is to value the choice of a woman to the destruction of the unborn babies. Where the right thing to do is to mock your parents because of their naive thinking and the way in which they raised you. Where the right thing to do is to use biblical sayings like, love your neighbor, yet deny the God of the Bible. But what if God says that the right thing that is celebrated by our culture is actually wrong. Then what? Then it's the right time for us to be in the book of Judges because God's people, as we'll see, the Israelites were at a crossroads. The the choice was ever before them every single day. Are we going to look to the Lord who is faithful to his covenant promises or are we going to submit ourselves to a culture who says this is right? And really, this book explains how the people of God, the Israelites, mainly fail in this task. How God's people continue to turn from knowing, loving, and obeying God to doing what was right, as the scripture says, in their own eyes. Tim Keller says that Judges can be described as a book of despicable people doing deplorable things. 
or as trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. And we will begin to see that over and over and over again. In fact, even the heroes of this book, the judges themselves, become increasingly flawed and failing. But all is not lost. And we need this now more than ever. We as the people of God, because in this book, we find out about our merciful God, who he is, his nature, his character, who is long-suffering, who's faithful to his covenant despite our constant rejection of his purposes. And so I want us to see this morning loud and clear that although they reject him, God redeems his people because of his covenant-keeping love. I'll say it again. Although they reject him, God redeems him because of his covenant-keeping love. And that reminds me, while we're there, just for a moment, if you haven't already grabbed a, a scripture journal from Judges, go ahead. There should be one around you if you haven't gotten one. Uh, we at least have one for every family. So if you want to take notes with us while we're in the book of Judges, you can do so there. Um, so let's get into the text. If you, if you happen to miss last week and you didn't, watch the sermon already, or you haven't listened to the sermon podcast, you're in luck because the author of Judges, he really catches us up again. He does a reintroduction like Genesis 1 and 2. He gives us a different perspective about what has already been communicated. Last week, the author of Judges, he zeroed in on what the people did and what they did not do in settling the land. But this week, we're focusing in on a different perspective. What is God doing? What's, what's God doing while his people are doing this and that in settling the land? So chapter 2, verse 6, if you're there in the text with me. We're just going to walk through it this morning and, and point out things along the way. Chapter 2, verse 6 says this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. God's people had finally made it to the land that they had been promised. This was a really good time for the people of God. And Joshua had gone into the heart of Canaan, if you remember, and he had, had attacked it at the very heart. He had gotten the city of Jericho and then the, the place right to the west of it, Ai, and they had essentially divided the Canaanites up into two areas. But now the 12 tribes of Israel were to go and settle the land. They were to take what God had already given them, and they were to do at a local level what had already been done by Joshua at a national level. When the text says that each were to take possession of the land, we're taken back just a couple of pages in your Bible to Joshua chapter 23, when he gives the Israelites the plan for settling. So if you're in the text with me, turn back to Joshua chapter 23. Look specifically at verse 5 with me. He says this, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do that is all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. 
That was, that was what they were supposed to do in taking the land. They were to get rid of all of the Canaanites, and they were not to give in to the Canaanites and their worship in any way at all. Back to Judges chapter 2, verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So we see that there is this generation of Joshua, and then there is this generation that outlasted Joshua, and then there's a a third generation, if you will, in view here at the end of uh, verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done from Israel. Now listen, when we hear verse 10, this should be a sobering verse for us. Because it wasn't, it wasn't long before that that the Lord had caused the city of Jericho to crumble as they walked around it. This generation should know about that. They should have heard about that. They should have loved God as they had heard about what God had done for his people. It wasn't much longer that the people had been delivered by God out of slavery after 400 years of Egyptian rule. That generation had witnessed the sea part into two so that they could walk through it. God had finally given his people the land that he had promised to them. And now they were here. They were to enact Deuteronomy chapter 6, that that familiar passage that many of us know here in the land that God had promised to them. The, The word of God was to be vibrant everywhere. It was to be on the outside of their houses. It was to be on the inside of their houses. The word of God was to be ever on their lips when they were lying down and when they were walking. Parents were to teach their children the word of God, and now they were finally in the place that that could happen. And they could glorify God together as a people in the land that he had promised to them. Also that God would be glorified and other nations would be able to look into this nation and land to see, look at the God that they serve. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he faithful to fulfill his covenant promises? God had set up all of this so beautifully. Psalm 78 says that he commanded the fathers through the testimony of Jacob, to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And yet, here we are in Judges chapter 2, in the midst of the promised land, in the midst of this land that God had been promising to his family and his children for ages, and there is this generation that doesn't know anything about the Lord or about the work that he had done for Israel. Now, the connotation of no here is an intimate one. It doesn't doesn't say that they have no idea about who God is or about what he has done, but rather they do not know God. 
They don't know him. They, they knew about him, but there was no intimacy. There was no relationship. They weren't moved to awe when they heard about what God had done for his people. And I just have to stop there in the middle of hearing about this passage and ask the question, is that you? Is it you? Have you, have you been hearing about the God of the Bible for years? Sunday after Sunday, coming to the Sunday gathering, gathering with all of God's people, having sung that wonderful old hymn, hymn, great is thy faithfulness, but knowing nothing about the faithful God. Today is the day of salvation for you. Today is that day that God has granted you mercy yet again, that you would come into right relationship with him who is a merciful God so that you would not just know about God like this generation of Israelites, but that you would know him intimately, that you would understand what he has done, not just for his people corporately, but for you individually. But listen, the Israelites aren't getting off the hook so easily. Because it's not as though God has, sorry, we're, we're going to back up just a minute. I, I was thinking about when I share stories with my own children about my grandmother. They've never met my grandmother. They don't know anything about my grandmother. They will only hear what I remember about my grandmother, how she was an amazing, kind, loving woman. How, how she taught me over and over about the God of the Bible. How I remember going into her room morning after morning before I would go off to school and she would pray with me. My kids are only going to know about my grandmother so much as though I communicate with them about her. They will know about my grandmother, but they will never know her. They'll never have a relationship with her. And so when we think about the Israelites, they aren't getting off the hook so easily because it's not as though that God has died and the relationship can be no longer with this generation. No, God is eternal. God is alive. He has always been alive. He will always be alive. Mom and dad, perhaps they hadn't come through for the Israelite children exactly how they should have, and that's on them. But there's also this apprehending of the faith that this new generation failed to do. Young person, don't think for a second that because your parents are walking with the Lord as faithful disciples, that you too are a Christian who will walk with the Lord in the same way just because. This generation failed to do what God told them to do. And thus begins the judge's cycle that we'll see throughout the rest of the book. The author now gives us an overview of it beginning in verse 11. So if you're taking notes, there are going to be 12 judges throughout this book. And there is this similar seven-step cycle that will happen over and over and over again with each judge. That cycle begins in verse 11 where we see that the people rebel. So that's, that's number one. That's a part of the cycle that the people are going to rebel. Verse 11, look there in the text with me. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. By the way, 
Uh, when I went off to Bible college for the first time up, into, up at uh, Louisville, Kentucky, I was sitting in chapel one morning, and the preacher kept saying, Baal, Baal, Baal. And I, I finally, at the end of the sermon, I, I leaned over to one of my uh, friends, and I was like, hey, who was he talking about? And, and he said, uh, he was saying, hey, you know, you in the South, y'all have been saying for years, Baal. Okay, so I'm going to say Baal, but if you'd like to sound cooler when you read the scriptures from here on out, like, like they would if, if you spoke Hebrew, you could say Baal, okay? But, but we say Baal down here in the south, and we'll probably keep doing it, okay? So verse 11, uh, we, we got that. Verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, people don't just turn from God, but they turn from God by turning to something else. Remember what Pastor Michael said last week, that amnesia often leads to apostasy. But there's something in the middle of those two ends. Amnesia leading to apostasy, we find in the middle of those two things, uh, uh, abandoning. Amnesia leads to abandoning, which leads to apostasy. Now, how does this happen? How did we get from the Israelites just two chapters earlier, two generations prior? The people are nodding with Joshua, that famous phrase that many of us have in our house. As for me and my house, we will. That just happened. If you're reading the scriptures right before the book of Judges, we find that at the end of the book of Joshua. The people had just said that. God, we are going to do whatever you would have us to do. As for me and my house, we will absolutely serve the Lord. So how do we find ourselves two generations after that saying, you know what? I don't know anything about the Lord and the things that I do. I really don't care to know about him. He isn't the Lord of my life. He isn't doing anything for me. I'll do whatever I want, and I'll live my life according to, to my ways and to the culture around me. How did, we, how did we get there? How did we get to mixing God in with all sorts of other idolatry? Well, here's how. First, they disregarded God's authoritative word. Don't miss that, family. That God's people disregarded his authoritative word. Look, it's a one thing to say that the Bible is inerrant. That's a, that's a popular thing for us to say as evangelical Christians, that I believe that God's word is inerrant. And it is one thing for us to say that and for you to believe that because you're a good student of the Bible and rightfully so. It's another thing for us as the people of God to, to believe that God's word is sufficient that it is good and right for every area of our life. Brother or sister, do you hang on to the word of God as life? Or do you hang on to it so as to be something that makes your life better? And when it doesn't seem to make your life any better, you disregard it for something else. God said to his people, remove the Canaanites from the land. 
And what did they do? They got up to certain people and they say, hey, uh, we've been doing a good job at destroying the Canaanites from the land so far, but those people, they have chariots of iron. We can't go there. Hey, we've been doing a really good job at removing the Canaanites, like you said, Lord, but those Canaanites, they just won't, they won't move. So we're just going to live beside them. Hey, hey, God, we've been doing a really good job doing exactly what you said, but you know, you know, why do we need to get rid of the Canaanites when we could actually use them for labor? Wouldn't that be better for us economically when God said all along, you are to do exactly what I say. You're to remove the Canaanites from the land. God said, get them out. And did the people follow that? No, they didn't get them out. So now there's this mixing of cultures And as Michael said last week, it wasn't an issue of racism. It wasn't that God said, hey, I I need this to be a pure race and that other races need to get out of this land. It wasn't a, a matter of racism. It was a matter of worship. The Canaanites were people that worshiped multiple gods. They worshiped all kinds of Baals, the text says. They were all about their crops. And the Canaanites were a people that that centered all of their worship. Everything that they had was about their crops, about the gods of the weather and the gods of fertility. In fact, they actually thought that so that there would be plentiful crops in the land, that the gods were up in the heavens having physical relations, relations so that there would be better crops in the lands. And to fuel that, here's what the Canaanites did. We won't go into too much detail. But the Canaanites actually said, the way that the gods are going to have physical relations up in the heavens are we're going to move them to that by having relations of our own in the temples with prostitutes. That's how they worshiped their gods. And that is why God said, do not mix with those people. They don't worship the true God. They worship the God that they want to worship. They worship the gods that are doing what they want to do. They they disregard God's authoritative word. Here's Here's a probable scenario. This is how that went down in the life of the culture. How how did God's people actually mix with the Canaanites? Because, Because you're thinking, you know what? If, if I was up against a culture like the Canaanites, I would just easily say, hey, I'm not going to have any part of that. That sounds really weird. No way you're going to get me into any temple doing the things that you guys are doing. I'm not doing that. Here's how it went down. Canaanite to an Israelite. Hey, how are you doing in the land? How are things going for you guys? And the Israelite says, you know, things are going pretty well overall for us. It's beautiful here. We're, we're thankful to finally be in the land that God had promised to us. Hey, um, remember, this is the Israelite to the Canaanite. Hey, I noticed one thing. Your crops are having a greater yield than my crops. Could, could you help me out just a little bit? And so the Canaanite to the Israelite, he, he begins to ask him some questions. Hey, are you planting this way? The Israelite says, yeah. Are, are you watering this many times? Yeah. Okay, well, what, what are, are the other variables? So that's when the Canaanite says, well, have you gone to the temple to, to worship the gods of the land? And the Israelite says, no. 
Canaanite says, oh, well, why don't you come, why don't you come and go with me? So the people of God that had been commanded to not intermix at all with the Canaanites had found themselves worshiping the same God that the Canaanites were worshiping. And so the people rebel. The second part of the cycle is this, that God is angry. And you can see why. He's a jealous God, the scripture tells us. We see that at the end of verse 12. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And in verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why was the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel? Because his people were, were trading in their worship of him, the right worship of him, and giving it to something else that didn't care a lick about them. We can't miss this. When we sing the praises about the faithfulness of our God, we mustn't forget that faithful means that faithfulness means that he does all that he says he will do. Here's what I mean. So when the people of God disobey, when they turn from the worship of the one true God to the worship of Baals, God keeps his word from Joshua 24 when it was said that if they forsake the Lord for foreign gods, that he would do something. It said he would turn and do them harm and consume them after having done them good. God's anger is kindled against the people, and that is a part of his faithfulness. God said he would do that if they disobeyed. And then third, we see the oppression by enemies. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Again, Listen, our God is a jealous God. When, when God's bride runs out on him for someone else, his righteous anger is stirred. But it's not as though God is out of control like you and I often are when we find ourselves in the midst of anger. But rather, God has set his love and affection on his people. So when we run astray on him, our sin grieves him and his anger is rightly provoked. So what we see happening with the Israelites is that according to his word, they have walked away from him. They have done what he said not to do. He removes his restraining hand of mercy away from them. And so we now get to see how these false gods, the Baals, the Ashtaroth, how are they going to come through for caring for these people? What kind of love are they going to demonstrate to the people of God? What kind of concern are they going to give to these people? And so the Israelites are oppressed by their enemies. And accordingly, they find themselves fourthly in this cycle, as verse 15 concludes, in terrible distress. Fourth, misery is where the people of God find themselves. So what does God do? He shows mercy to a people who are completely undeserving. And fifth, we see salvation through a chosen leader. Verse 16, 
Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. If God's people would only stop and recognize the compassion of their God right here, that there are absolutely no other gods who can give grace, can dispense grace to an undeserving people. There are no other gods. The Baals can never come through and offer forgiveness for a rebellious people. And yet, despite their unfaithfulness, God is faithful. And that's what we need to see over and over again in the book of Judges. And six, the people experience peace. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. I want you to notice something with me. God gives them peace, his people, through a judge for a time, not because they are a repentant people, but because they are doing what? They're groaning. Hear the graciousness of our God. I want you to imagine a scenario for just a minute. We are all children or we have been a child at some point in our lives. So imagine, maybe, maybe you have a child that's still doing this. There's a child at the table who doesn't eat all of their food as they were supposed to. A mom and dad says to eat it all so that you wouldn't be hungry. And the child just cannot eat the food that they're supposed to eat. And that night, that child lays in bed and their stomach starts to growl. And so that child starts crying out to mom and dad, Mom! Dad! I'm hungry! Now, I don't know about you, um, but my mom and dad... And me, as a dad, I'm not going to respond very kindly to that kind of growing, right? Groaning, right? Why? Because mom and dad already said you were supposed to eat every bit of food that was on your plate. And if you had, you wouldn't be hungry, right? So you're doing all this groaning while your child, and you're saying, can I have a snack, please? Now, mom and dad are going to answer at some point. They're not going to answer with a snack. They're going to answer with a spanking, right? That's what's going to happen in my house and the house that I grew up. But listen, I need you to hear this. God, after his own people disregard his authoritative word, his word that was good for them, his word that was going to bring them absolute peace after they disregard it, after they say, hey God, your word actually means nothing for my life and isn't as good as you say that it is. After they do all of that, after his people begin to groan because things aren't working out in the land that God had promised them with the Canaanites, as they are doing things their own way, God still sends compassion. He still sends help. He still sends peace. He shows mercy, giving them something that they do not deserve. Why? Because God loves his 
people and he always fulfills his covenant promises. Don't miss that. And then finally, number seven, in the cycle, the judge dies. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read our remaining verses beginning with verse 20, okay? Chapter two, verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Labo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Throughout the book, we're going to see a continued downward spiral, cycle after cycle, but the people and the trends continue to get worse and worse. With each judge, God's chosen leader himself getting worse and worse, and there are 300 to 350 more years of this cycle. We see one of the points of the cycles in verse 22 is in order to test Israel. Chapter 3, verse 1, to test Israel by them. Verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel. God uses the Canaanites, this wicked, deplorable people, a really terrible nation to test his own people. Who does Israel trust? Who does Israel love? And throughout this book, we see that Israel loves not her God and creator, but her sin. Our passage this morning concludes with the Israelites being given in marriage to the Canaanites and vice versa. Now, there's nothing of the Canaanites serving the God of the Bible, only the Israelites serving theirs. But you know what? Although they reject him, God redeems his people because of his covenant-keeping love. So how does this apply to us? As we wrap up this morning, the first thing that I want us to see is that the greatest threat to your family is asking God to coexist with idols. That's the greatest threat to your family. Now, we aren't in the same exact situation as the nation of Israel. If you think we are, we have some really big problems. America isn't God's chosen nation. The church is God's chosen people. That's the difference. God hasn't commanded us to destroy all of those who are not Christians. Rather, we've been told to take his word out to the nations and share the gospel with them. 
We're to live in this world, but not to be of it, the Bible says. So how, do we, how are we to live as God's people in this world? Three ways. Uh, we, we should identify the false, false gods of the culture around us. If First if Peter chapter 5 is true, that the devil is actually prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, you need to be aware of what the devil is trying to use to consume and devour you and your family. And it probably isn't a fertility or a rain god, is it? It's not the same thing that the Canaanites were dealing with in, in working against the Israelites. No, it's often much more subtle for us today. You see, there's the false god of money. Some of us never think that we have enough. Some of us find ourselves consumed with the god of money all so very often that we give every ounce to money and to acquiring more of it, so much so that we find ourselves always worrying about it. Do we have enough? Will we have enough? How do we make more of it? False god of money, or second, the false god of reputation. This god is so deceiving that you find yourself wanting to walk in a room so that other people would see that you are a powerful person or that you are someone who should automatically have the, the respect of the people around. And how do we know that I'm following the God of reputation? Mainly because you can't bear to deal with any criticism that you receive in your life or that you're obsessive with your looks always wondering what people are saying about you or what they're thinking about you. You're bitter because other people in your circumference don't recognize your inherent value, the God of reputation. Third, do you serve the God of sensuality? That there is this physical pleasure out there and if you could just get a hold of the physical pleasure in life, you would have everything that you possibly could need. That you would actually have the meaning and value that your life has. We give ourselves over to these idols because they seem to promise power, freedom, and satisfaction. But when you get yourself in to these idols. When you find yourself at the end of the day, they actually have given you anything but freedom, haven't they? What we see in this text is that when the human heart is exposed, we actually find that we don't love God, but that we love our own sin. We all have our idols that we instinctively look to for love and comfort and security, affirmation and pleasure. Just like the Israelites, as soon as the judge is removed, as soon as that moment of mercy is removed from our lives, what do we do? We run straight back to our idols. And for the Israelites, it gets increasingly worse and worse. Second, to live in this world as God's people, we need to inspect what we give ourselves to. This is where you'll find out what false gods of the culture have gripped you with whether it's time or possessions or ambitions or entertainment or values, ask yourself this. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area in my life? If God says to get rid of this idol in my life, am I willing to give it up? Second, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? Wherever the answer is no, you are open or given over to an alternate God. Joshua had said to the Israelites, you won't be able to serve the Lord. 
for he is a holy God. For our God is a jealous God. The people will then say, no, we will serve the Lord. But we must see that there is a difference between assenting verbally to what the Lord has commanded us to do and then inspecting your life to see if you actually have done so. Third, we're to invest in the next generation. Children must not merely copy our faith, but they need to be converted. Certainly there was a failure on the part of the third generation to apprehend that God of their forefathers, but there was also a failure, it seems, on the part of the parents to pass on the faith that was given to them. Now perhaps parents assumed that it was going to happen naturally. Hey, these amazing miracles of God have happened for us, so it will be passed on to our children by osmosis. Church, we must be honest with our children. There's a generation coming of age that will want to know why we did this or that. Why we served God with our money and possessions and time in these particular ways, and we need to have an answer for them. We should give them the answers in grace and truth, not with just because I said so, not because this is how it's always been. We have a responsibility to see see that God's word is not only authoritative in the gathered assembly, but also in our homes. That's what the people of God do. We don't just speak of who God is and how wonderful he is when we gather together on Sunday mornings, but we do it throughout the week in our workplaces, when we're lying down, when we're rising up, when we're eating, when we're drinking, when we're with our family. So mom and dads, when you are hypocritical in your home, and you certainly will be, be quick to repent to your children. Demonstrate the gospel of forgiveness to them and in front of them and with your spouse and with others that come into your home. Be jealous for your spouse, for your kids, their future spouses, your grandchildren. Hear this, if the, if the room next door to you where your children were or the room next to your children was on fire, what would you do? You would, you would run to that room and, and take your children out of that room on fire. You wouldn't wait to see what happens next to them, would you? No, you'd run and get them out. You'd bring them to safe, safety. If you let it play out, the fire would absolutely consume them. Church, this is why we are told that older women are to teach younger women. Older men are to teach younger men so that we would not see a generation that are consumed by the gods of this age and culture. How are you investing, church family, in the next generation? Are you assuming that they will just be okay? Second point, the surest test of your faith is to look at your obedience. We saw this over and over again in the book of 1 John. Those who abide in God are going to be those who obey his commandments. That's how we know those who love God, those who follow his commandments. This is what God does to the Israelites. He tests them over and over again to measure their faith. And time and time again, they come up lacking. They prove that they've disobeyed God that they failed to keep their promise, that they've looked to other gods to bring pleasure and satisfaction, that 
They've put their hope in other means to gain life. And so they failed the test of faith. The Israelites, by the end of chapter 2, verse 6, are seen to be a disobedient people. And yet, we can't miss this in the book of Judges. God pursues his people all the more. Why? Don't miss this, finally. The clearest reality of God's faithfulness is his unrelenting mercy. You see, we're seeing a lot of failure. We will continue to see even more failure in the book of Judges. But the point is not to stop here and to commiserate at the Israelites' failure. We could look at them all the day long and say, look, look, the Israelites failed to teach their children and look what happened to the next generation as a result. We could stop and point fingers all the day long. But what we actually see is that there is a a people who continued to disobey God time and time again. But there is a faithful God who continues to pursue his people with compassion, love, mercy, and grace over and over and over again. That's what we can't miss in the book of Judges. That's what we can't miss, that there is a God who has come to rescue sinful people. And I don't know about you, but that is good news for me. Because I'm a person, I'm an individual, I'm a pastor who often fails and misses the mark time and time again. I am a parent who completely misses the mark. I'm a parent who continues to mess up in teaching my children. I'm a, I'm a dad and a husband who completely continues to miss the mark. I'm a friend who misses the mark. I'm a child of God who continues to miss the mark. And yet God continues to love me because of his faithful promise, because he's a covenant-keeping God, and we can't miss that. We can't miss that.